I'm glad to be bringing this particular Christmas morning message. And I was saying to the men this morning that it's, this is the Lord's Day. And that takes precedence over what we refer to as Christmas. That's a particular focus. It's become the focus of our culture and one that we would, that we could be excited about if they got the message right. So this is the Lord's Day Christmas message is, is, is what we're going to call this today. So it's important that we do hear from the word. We let God define what Chris, Christmas is all about. And uh, of course, many of the things that we participate in on this particular day um, are not found in Scripture. They've been picked up over time. You may not know that the first person, for instance, who brought a Christmas tree into his house was a man by the name of Martin Luther, lighted candles on them and so on. So there's a whole history of all the traditions, the gift giving, all of those things, the way the date was picked. It's probably more like March or April that uh, that Jesus was actually born. So uh, there's there's a number of traditions that we I want to sort of dispel this morning as we let the scriptures speak for themselves and see exactly what's went on historically. Because we, those of us gathered here this morning, would agree that this is a true story. This actually happened in history. Already from the reading, we've learned that this was, this was a miracle that took place. It's considered an essential to our faith, for instance, that Jesus be recognized as, as having been born of a virgin. And there's some controversy over what that, which word is actually used in the, in the Hebrew and the, uh, what that means, whether a virgin or a, uh, a maiden and so on. And we're going to look at those texts as we go through and try to clarify some of these myths and other uh, misunderstandings. So what I want to do is break this down into three pieces, verse 1 through 20 in chapter 2 of Luke's account, and I'm going to read through the first part and then sort of briefly go through verse 1 through 7, and then we'll pause for prayer, and then we'll go down and we'll slow down a little bit as we see the uh, announcement that's made by the angel to the shepherds and walk through that and see after that what their response is after we leave, uh, the angels leave and they go visit Jesus in the manger. So let's read 1 through 7. This morning, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for an appointment. Uh, Though culturally informed, we are glad to return to this particular gospel birth narrative where we've been so blessed the past three months as we've looked at the gospel of John, the fourth gospel, and looked at Jesus as he's fully grown and showing up on the scene as a man beginning his ministry and calling for his disciples. With that still resonating in our minds and in our hearts, we come to this text. 
And so it has a special uh, appreciation for us here at Grace Bible Fellowship this morning because of what you've appointed for us to listen, learn, and understand through John's gospel in the first chapter. So much we've learned. And now we come back to the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of the Son of God and the Son of Man. So help us, Lord, with some of these uh, historical details and other things, because we understand these are important, because they, you've allowed them providentially to be uh, preached on and remain in your eternal word, so they're important to us. So I pray, Lord, that these things would be made clear and that you would help us to keep our focus on this story. There's no greater story told in all of human history. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in those days, that's not real clear in terms of a definite date, but in those days, Caesar Augustus, so we know that it's during Caesar Augustus's reign. That's not his name. Those are his titles. This is Caius, um, Caius, um, what is his last name? Caius, oh, it escapes me. It'll come to me. That all the world would be registered. So, Caesar Augustus, is, is he reigned from 31 B.C. to 14 A.D., and he conquered. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. He was also his adopted son. He was also an heir of all that Julius Caesar had. Julius Caesar died in 44 B.C., and by the time 31 B.C. came along, uh, Octavius Caius Octavius is his name, or Octavian, some say. But Caius Octavius was in line. Julie, he was a favor to Julius Caesar, but there were other great power struggles that went on from 44 B.C. up until 31 B.C., which was the final battle that secured the emperorship for, uh, uh, for Octavius, and that was the uh, battle with Mark or with uh, Antony, and when he was... He used to be married to uh, Octavius's uh, sister, and he left her for that bewitching woman that you'll recognize in terms of her name, and that's Cleopatra. So it was Antony and Cleopatra, and so the battle was between this final power struggle between Caius Octavius and Antony, and it it all took place on the sea. And Caius Octavius's ships were smaller, they were faster, and they, it was a decisive victory over Antony. Antony and Cleopatra, of course, went on to commit suicide together, if you're familiar with that story. But the Senate so recognized the power and the ability of his leadership that they, they decided to make him emperor. They actually dissolved the republic. He became emperor in 31 B.C., and he would until he died in 14 A.D. at the age of 76 So this is the man, but this is the man who brought a lot to the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean. He um, he's the one who brought in what was referred to as Pax Romana. There was a peace. There was a a Romanizing, a civilizing of the entire then known world around the Mediterranean Sea. And so one of the things he was uh, not only a powerful military leader, he was very wise, sharp, and adept at administrative things. And so he decided that every 14 years he wanted to have take a census. So everybody had to register. So he's the one who implemented the very first one, while Quirinius, whose 
His name is a memorable one as well. Publius Sulpicius Quirinius was the governor of Syria at the time. And so there were census that were to be taken every 14 years, and they would be after that. So they had. this is what prompted, of course, Joseph to have to go back to Bethlehem, the city of David, because that's the line they both come from. So now she has uh, received her, uh, that she would be, have the baby who would be the Christ. And so they're headed to make that 70 mile journey, a mountainous journey. Bethlehem is some 2,600 feet above sea level. So this would have been an amazing journey given uh, Mary's condition. She was with child. She was very, very advanced with child, very much with child. She was ready to deliver a child. And so they were sent and they had to go. So there's more um, banding about with, rec- with regard to trying to fix a, a certain date on when this census was taken. And I'm not going to go into that. We don't have time. But uh, all went to be registered, verse 3, to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. So in the betrothal, of course, as many of you may know, that was a, a legal status. In other words, you had to get divorced if you wanted to separate from your uh, betrothal, from the one you're betrothed to. So they were betrothed at the time. She's with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. So these are strips of cloth. It's not swaddling clothes. It's swaddling cloths. They're strips of cloth that they would wrap around the baby for a few different important purposes. First of all, for warmth, but also to keep the real sharp. If you've had children, you know that when they're small and when they're babies, they're their fingernails are like razor blades and they can cut up their eyes and everything else with their hands. They don't know any better. So it's not only for that to keep their arms at their side, but it's also thought to strengthen their arms as well as they're sort of like a moth breaking free from a cocoon. They have to fight to do it. So this is what that means. They laid him in a manger. This is a food. This is a feed trough for, uh, for the livestock that's there. And the reason is, it's disclosed for because there was no place for them in the inn. The inn, in the inn, this is the Greek word kataluma. Uh, it simply means uh, a place to stay. Uh, it doesn't mean an inn as we might picture it, or as we might see in some of the traditional scenes where it's sort of like this, <clears throat> you know, Motel 6 or whatever. Uh, that doesn't necessarily how it's going to look, you know, first century motel kind of a deal. It's probably more likely a carved out, an area carved out of limestone, almost like a little cave for to, to put the livestock and to feed them and to keep the feed and keep things dry and so on. It's more likely that, but it could also be Joseph... Uh, staying with one of his relatives. That's his hometown. He has to go back for the census. He might be in one of their homes, and there wasn't any room left. Uh, the, the Legacy Standard Bible says 
a guest room is how they translate it. So there's some of these things that aren't exactly uh, defined because of the term that's used. It's just it's a lodging place. It's a guest chamber, that kind of thing. And there might not have been there might have been room for them to sleep and not room to have a baby. So there's no word in the text that says that Joseph was actually with her. But we since we can't imagine him being without her, even though it's not technically his child, uh, we still include him in the paintings and so on that he's right there. And he probably was. But just to point out, the text doesn't disclose that, doesn't say that he was he was with her when the baby was born. So can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, this this is, of course, fulfillment of Micah 5, verse 2. You'll recall this where and you hear these recited at Christmas time. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which distinguishes it from other another Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. And I want you to I want you to hold on to that concept, the concept of little, the concept of modest, the, the concept of meager, the concept of Spartan. I, I want you Spartan in terms of 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 not many embellishments, not nice uh, accommodations, not not noble and regal figures. There, the entire narrative is absent of that, and there's an important reason why, and I hope we'll see that as we go along. So the, the, even the, in the Old Testament prophetic uh, writings, we have uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's as though the Lord is being deliberate about that, that this is going to be a small, just like when he elect Israel as a nation, did he elect her because she was great, she was big, she was grand, she was powerful, she was rich in minerals, any of those things. None of them. Why? Ask yourself that question. Why? As you go through this birth narrative and we'll get a hold of something very, very important, I think. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. That's pretty much deity, isn't it? Yeah. John 7:42 it was Gamaliel himself when he's trying to tamp down the the rhetoric and the um excitement at with the Sanhedrin with the council uh, regarding Jesus he says in John 7:42 has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem the village where David was settled down he's from Nazareth we know nothing good comes from there. Nazareth, as I mentioned from our series last week, was despised. Galilee was looked down with condescension. And among the Galileans, Nazareth was not well thought of. So we see here, they knew that, it would ha- it would, that the Messiah, that the ruler, the leader, the king, would come from Bethlehem. Our scriptures say that. There's no denying it. So what happened when the Sanhedrin actually actually got a hold of the fact, fact that Jesus was originally born in Bethlehem? We don't know, right? But we know the rest of the story, don't we? You can read 1 Samuel 16, uh, verse 1 and following with regard to Samuel going to find who the king would be and whose line he would come from. Do you remember that? Jesse, his father, was a what? Bethlehemite. You remember that? Yeah, all through Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, it makes that clear. So Jesse 
is his father. He has a bunch of brothers. And remember this theme all the way through this meager, this small, this weak, this humble, right? He goes through the brothers, doesn't he? Is it this one? Is it this one? Is it this one? Well, I guess he's not here. No, there's one more. It couldn't possibly him. He's a runt. He's a runt of the litter. He's out there tending sheep. He couldn't possibly be the king. Well, and you know the rest of that story, don't you? So we see this, this theme all the way through Scripture. Verse 8. Now let's move forward and look at the shepherds and the angel who shows up to make the, this great, fantastic announcement. Now already you should be struck by who, he's going, who the angel has been sent to. Who does God send the angel to? Shepherds. That ought to be curious. I mean, we're, we grew up in a culture that's used to hearing that. We see all the nativity scenes and the shepherds and so on. But really, the shepherds? Why wouldn't you show up to Gamaliel, for one example, or, or, or to Caiaphas? Why, why wouldn't you show up at least to, to Herod, the king? Well, why, why would you show up in a field with shepherds? Well, it says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field watching over their flock by night. So last week we saw that in chapter one of John's gospel, verse 35 and following, who did Jesus go to when he selected? Remember why I said in that sermon, uh, if you or I were to pick who to go to to get this message of the gospel around the globe, who would we choose? probably religious leaders and the most powerful people, the movers and shakers, the people that could actually get things done, wouldn't we? Who'd they pick? Who'd he pick? Fisherman. Galilean. Fisherman. How about that? He chose to grow up there in Galilee. Picked the worst town, Nazareth. I say he picked because he's God, is he not? He's God. He's sovereign. And that's his appointment. I think I'll grow up in... Nazareth, that'll be good. It should be turning people's heads, showing up to shepherds. And then I got to thinking about it, and I thought, how many important biblical characters in the Old Testament were shepherds? Do you know? Who's the first one? Abel. Abraham. Jacob. The 12 children, including Joseph. Right? Moses, David, they were all shepherds. All shepherds. Why? Why? Shepherds were despised, particularly by the, the orthodoxy of the day, the religious elites, because they couldn't keep up with the ceremonial washings. They couldn't keep up with the, the law of Moses. They were out in the fields and by the way, Bethlehem being so close to the temple in Jerusalem, we can assume that these shepherds were in particular shepherds that were providing sheep for the slaughter, for sacrifice. But they're dirty. They're out with the ones that are going to be slaughtered. They're not out there with all perfectly um, spotless lambs. No, they're out there with mostly just ruddy, nasty, filthy, vermin-ridden, Sheep. All we want from them is 
the one pure spotless lamb, the lamb without blemish so that we can make sacrifices for our sins. We're not going to pay attention to who gave those to us. They just need to supply those things. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-29 God chose what is low and despised in the world. There it is again. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. James said something similar in chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Isn't that, wasn't that his plan? By the time James, the Lord's half-brother, is writing, they would have un- should have understood that? Isn't that how this goes? He chooses the poor. He chooses the humble. He chooses the weak. What happens to the rich? What happened to the rich young ruler? He's not only rich, he's a ruler, right? As you put those narrative texts together, that's why we call him the rich young ruler. Those are the adjectives that sort of define who that fellow was. I think it's defined in that threefold way. It's not going to be the young and the strong. It's not going to be the rulers. It's not going to be the rich. As a matter of fact, it would be easier to put a camel what? It's easier to do that. He knows who to go to because he knows who it is that understands their need. Because they understand not only their depravity, but their deprivations, what they're depraved of. They have no position. And their station in life, they're what you might call at least average. Nobody's. Nobody's heard their names necessarily. They don't command great armies. They don't lead governments. They don't have wealth untold. Isn't that the plan? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? That's true riches, isn't it? I'm going to the shepherds. I'm going to send Gabriel. Powerful in God is what that name means. Can you imagine him appearing? I think we would fall to the ground. There's a reason it says, don't be afraid. When he goes to Zechariah, fear not. When he goes to Mary, there's, there's a reason why. This, is, this has to be a shuddering sight to show up. And, and who would be the least to expect to have such a great announcement appear? Maybe fishermen, maybe shepherds, the despised, the, the ones that received the condescension of the privileged ones of the elites. But here's the verse that really squares out our theology on this point. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul writing, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand the favor that you've received from our Lord Jesus Christ? Here it is. That though he was what? Anybody with me? Rich. Yet for your sake he became poor. Why? 
so that by his poverty we might become rich. Again, just like James pointing out what real riches are. It's what our inheritance holds for us, isn't it? This is not our home. Do you want to be rich and famous here in a place that's perishing? Do you want to be Hollywood's favorite? Do you want to be a favorite of the federal government? Do you want to be the leader of the FBI? Head of a big bank or maybe a series of banks? I'm going to set all that aside, said Jesus. The majesty that I have a right to on high. Because I consider it something not to hang on to. Not a thing to be grasped. I'll let go of that. I'll become poor. I'll condescend to be... And even Isaiah 53, doesn't it say, there's no appearance that's going to be attractive about him, is there? Not like Saul. Oh, you'll recognize Saul. He's a head taller than the rest of men, and he's handsome. Now, when he condescends, he's going to blend in with everybody else, particularly the shepherds and the fishermen. He's going to blend right in. Who is Paul? One of the greatest apostles ever in terms of his proliferation of the God, his church planting scheme, right? What did they say about him? Oh, you got to hear him preach. That boy can preach. And you know what? He's handsome. I mean, he's got a sharp Brooks Brothers suit on. How we have things upside down, don't we? The things that we look for, the things that we judge are valuable to us. The metrics we use to decide what a good church is. Are we a mess or what? He made himself poor. That in joining us in terms of the poverty of being a human being in a fallen place, imagine that, you're God. You think Gabriel's something to behold. How about Jesus, who is the Son of God? And he sets all of that aside to his poverty so that he might become one of us, save the sin, so that he can serve as a sacrifice for us. And that we might become rich in faith because the only one that benefit from that, obviously, are those of faith, right? You can't get there because you celebrate Christmas once a year, can you? That's not how it works. So God dispatches his powerful angel, this Gabriel, to men who fed sheep, men who led the sheep, Men who, who protected the sheep. Does this sound familiar? Does this fit a job description or some other character that you're aware of? Men who lived among the sheep. Humble men who were despised by the religious elite. So to me, and this I put a note in for you, it makes perfect sense that God would announce the birth of the Lamb of God to shepherds who tended the temple sheep intended for sacrifice. Doesn't that seem to make at least poetic sense? When Matthew cites Micah 5, 2, he puts it this way. Matthew 2, verse 6. O you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Who will shepherd my people Israel. 
It's becoming more and more clear to me why God's choice for Gabriel would be as it is. So Jesus is both the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he's also the, according to John one twenty nine, as we looked at that, and he's also the good shepherd who lays what? Down his life for the sheep. So he takes away the sin of the world. He's the shepherd in terms of his rulership, in terms of his, his royalty, his, in the line of the king. David, he's a shepherd and he's also a sheep. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by sacrificing himself. And so it makes even more sense that Gabriel would show up to a bunch of shepherds that are supplying the sheep for sacrifice in the temple. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. So the angels, I I often wonder this, don't you? When the angels are sent and they show up, and they look at the image bearers of the God that they serve, and they see the state that we're in, What must they be thinking? Those that are perfectly holy, pure, those holy angels, those unfallen created spirit beings showing up, I want you to go down and I want you to go to the kings of the world, go to the, no, go to the shepherds outside the temple, outside the gates. You go to them and you show yourself and here's what you say. And they go because they're perfectly obedient. Perfect submission obedience. Perfect. Never a question, never hesitation. Boom, they go. These are powerful beings. One angel destroyed 186,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night just to get how powerful they are. And then they look at us. They see us dying, perishing, fogged up in our brains, selfish, looking to things that satiate us. What must they be thinking? These are shepherds yet. I grew up in a blue-collar world. I know what blue-collar fallen men can be like. I was one of them. Barbara's saying what he mean was. They're looking at us who should be bearing the image of the Creator that they serve perfectly. And they see us as we are in the misery from the consequences of our own sin. How long do they have to think about this before they make their announcement? Though the angels have no need for salvation themselves, as you well know, they're intrigued, they're fascinated by this whole redemptive story that God has in mind, and they must be intrigued by why would you bother? If we don't get to that place, we'll never have near enough the appreciation that we're meant to have for what we've been given on this day. Part of our greatest problem is we 
deliberately mask how the depths of depravity. It's very, very deep. If we would, we would be much more humble than we are, much more giving, much more ready to serve other people, much more ready not to look at ourselves, but to the, the needs of other people as these great creatures were, as they served as ministers of God and of messengers of God. They ministered to Jesus after the temptation. They, they minister as God sends them. But they've come with the message we need to hear. Right? So we're glad. So holy angels are powerful spirit beings. They serve the Lord as messengers and ministering spirits. They also know the sublime glory of serving God in his very presence. You think of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has the year King Uzziah dies, the the heavens open up and he sees the train of the Lord's, just the train, just the fringe of the Lord's robes. And he sees what? The seraphim flying. Six wings. Why? Why six wings? That sounds like a freakish angel to me. Usually we see them with a set of wings. Why six? One, they're covering their eyes. And two, they're covering their feet. It's He's that holy, and they're in his presence, and they sing that antiphonal refrain over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The trihagion. Holy, holy, holy. That's what they spend their time doing, and then they get sent, and they come down to us. What a job. The angel Gabriel said to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, in Luke 1, 19, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. He makes that clear right up front with Zechariah. He's a priest. You're a priest. Well, guess what I do? And you can imagine this creature, how he manifested himself. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you good news. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And they had to be thinking, And boy, do you need it. (laughs) That will be for all the people. There's no greater news. There's no greater gift. There's no source of greater joy than what God is offering as a gift, free of charge. He's offering this gift. No greater gift than to set the captives free and allow the blind to see. And somebody, some of you, as I, remember what that was like, being set free from a prison and had my eyes opened for the first time. Like somebody who was blind their whole life, and they're slowly unwrapping the bandage off of their head, and light starts to come. Light starts to come, and it starts to define things. And I can start to see how things really are in all of their detail, good, bad, and the ugly, all of it. What's right and what's wrong, we can know truth for the first time. All of this comes, all of this comes together with an inheritance and eternal life. And what does it cost us? Nothing. 
It's a gift. That is good news, isn't it? It's the best news. There isn't any better. And who's it for? What does the verse say? For all the people. For all the people this message goes out. We don't hesitate. For all the people. The way to the glories of heaven have now been opened wide. The gates are wide open to all people everywhere. John the Baptist, you remember in our text, verse 29 of John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we worked through that. What does that mean? It means what it says. He takes away the sin of the world. You need more? John 4.42, to the men of Sychar, the Samaritan woman, she shares her story to the men. And here's what the men say in Samaria. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so we go and we make the same announcement. We don't get bogged down by too much, too many of the barnacles of Reformed theology, even though we believe all of those things. They're certainly true. That's why I said, stop at this point. In order to get your marching orders to, orders to go, don't let yourself hesitate. The people need to know. So far, there is no more return of the angel Gabriel. It's now our charge. We are the witness for Christ. We give him a voice. To whom? To those who receive the message. What message? The message that Jesus has come to take away the sin of the world. First John 4.14 And we have seen, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so we go. I'll let, you, I'll let that resonate in your minds for a little while. You'll wrestle with that, and then we'll clarify that before we end this morning, Lord willing. If I die before I get a chance to, you're on your own. Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In Matthew, and David read a, a verse from this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to 23. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel, he was considering quietly divorcing his betrothed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Savior... Is, appears three times in the Gospels, just three times. I read one of them to you in John chapter 4, verse 42, from the men of Sychar. They say the Savior of the world. And, of course, um, our text as well. And, um, and Mary also says that. God my Savior, right? 
she's rejoicing in God, her Savior, recognizing herself. What the Catholic Church does with this information, I have no idea, nor does it matter to me. But she needed a Savior. She fully recognized that. I'm rejoicing in God, my Savior. Those are the three times that word is used. So it means far more, we can assume, than what the shepherds were expecting. Everybody, had, the word was out, I'm sure, were expecting a king to come. These were the earthly expectations of the people of the day in that part of the world, in Judea, in Gal and, uh, Galilee, and all those who were exposed to Ju Judaic teaching. Isaiah 9, 6, here's a prophecy. Micah was a, a contemporary of Isaiah, so both of them are speaking 700 years roughly before Christ's birth. And in Isaiah 9, 6, you're familiar, you hear this every year. For to us a child of bor is born, to us a son is given. I'm glad there's more to this verse. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor. You remember? Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. This is him. This is who we're talking about. This is who's referred to in Paul's letter to the Galatian church in uh, chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God did what? Sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law. Just to, So let's lay out the particulars that would make him qualified to be able to serve as a sacrifice. And why did he come in that way? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Verse 12, And this will be a sign for you. You will, be, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And that's exactly what they did find. So Jesus had every right and fully the omnipotent power to come as a conquering king, and he didn't choose to do that. He could have come with a host of angels. He's the Jehovah of Sabaoth. He's the, the Lord of the hosts of angels. Yet he came in this humble way as a baby born in a stable to a peasant girl. It's amazing. She was in her teens, something in her very early teens, think, some think that both Joseph and Mary were teenagers. And she was in her early teens. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. Jesus had nothing. He's born in a manger. He's probably a carved out cave. There's livestock there and put in a feed trough because there was no room for them. Jesus himself said, you remember when he said this to the man who wanted to come join him? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, his favorite name for himself, by the way, what a loving Savior. Son of Man has what? We do, don't we? We've got pretty nice places to lay our head tonight. A little nippy at times. We haven't been able to get our house above... 62, 63, for three days. So, but way better than this, yeah? He had nothing. 
He had to borrow a donkey to ride in for his triumphal entry. Some triumphal entry, right? What are they used to? The Roman conquerors riding in on their big white stallions with a retinue all around them, an entourage of and the captives out in front. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Have this in mind among yourselves, which are yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself what? Nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, thank God, and being found in human form, praise the Lord, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the point of the whole humble beginning is going to be a most vicious and bloody end. Thank God the story doesn't end there, right? Verse 13, And suddenly there was the with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising and saying, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. With whom he is pleased is the qualifier. So you should ask yourself, so he's the Savior of the world, we need to pay attention to the qualifier, don't we? with whom he is pleased. So that's the litmus test. So it should send us hurried to our scriptures to throw the book open and look for who is it that pleases God, right? Because we're moral. There's some pretty moral dudes back then. The Pharisees, there were no more religious or moral people than they were. And yet wretchedly immoral in their hearts, right? So what's he talking about? Because anybody can do things that we would think would please God. We need to understand that peace with God only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the qualifier. Where do I come up with that? Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is what? To do what? To please him. It's impo- it doesn't matter because all of your righteous works, according to Isaiah, are what? Filthy rags. It doesn't matter how much you moralize yourself. Actually, that takes you further and further and further away from the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's only humility that will get you some ground there. It's only a confession of your wretchedness that causes you to have your eyes opened by the Lord, by His grace, to see that a Messiah, a Savior has come so that you might be saved. That's faith. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. We're back to that idea of seeking. There were those that, what are you seeking? Remember from John's Gospel? That was the the first question. That was the main question. That was the only question. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? I just want my life to go better. Wrong answer. Next person. What are you seeking? I need help. I need help. I'm a sinner. I am a great sinner. Please, Lord. Please. Help me. Help me. 
Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 85.10, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Where do they do that? Right here. Righteousness and peace meet together in the Messiah. Him who is our righteousness. Jehovah Tassid Canoe. The Lord is our righteousness. I needed a righteousness because I have none of my own. It doesn't matter all of the things that I'm doing that I say account or accrue for good works. It's all trash. It's scubalon. It's garbage, as Paul wrote in Philippians. I need mercy. I need peace. Isaiah 32, 17 to 18, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. I need it from somewhere. I have to recognize my own desperation. You see, I, I can't look back at the good things I did here and there. I can't start listing those things and just hoping upon hope that God will grade on a curve and somehow he'll say, that's okay, all right, I'll let you in. It doesn't work that way, and you know that. Because if one has committed one sin, he is guilty of how much of it? The entire law. It's over at that point. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever thought a, a, a rotten, nasty thought toward another human being? And you think, some of you might be thinking, yeah, I did that like yesterday, maybe this morning. Yes, we're sinners. We're sinners. We have to recognize our own desperation. It's going to have to be someone who's like us, or he can't serve for us. He, it can't be Gabriel, can it? Why can't it be Gabriel? He's a spirit being. He's not a human. That's why the fallen angels are irredeemable. It has to be one of us, but it can't be one of us because our first parents sinned in such a way that it was passed on to the rest of the human race. And so we, are, we aren't sinners because we sin. We, we sin because we're sinners by nature. How, who's gonna, how, how is this ever going to be resolved? How is this ever going to be resolved? A perfectly righteous human. He's just been born. A baby. Like any other baby, hungry, crying, all the rest of it. They sort of gild those images, don't they? They sort of have this glowing thing coming up from him and this perfectly angelic look. It was a baby. He was a baby. He didn't have an appearance that we would, we would be drawn to him or attracted to him or see anything mystical or mysterious about him. He was a baby. That's what we needed him to be. He doesn't need to be different than me. He needs to be one of me except without sin. Yeah? I'm thankful for Hebrews. He has no sin in him. You put someone to death that committed no wrong... Where does that righteousness go? The whole universe is torn in two by such an injustice. That would be horrible. 
You can't do that. It has to go somewhere. Where does it go? The term is imputation. It's a, an accountant's term. He took on by account all of our sins so that we might by faith receive what? The opportunity. The opportunity to do works of righteousness. No, we're not Catholics. To receive the fullness of his righteousness. All of it that he has to give in all of its perfected glory come to us. And we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we make no provision for sin. I wear the blood-stained yet perfectly pure and holy garment of the Son of God. By faith. Faith alone. Through Christ Alone, because of grace, alone, to the glory of God, alone. There's your qualifier. I have nothing to bring, but just an understanding of my desperate need. And if you're willing to do that, He's available, and all that comes with Him. Isaiah 54.10, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And aren't you glad that he does? We have such a hard time having compassion on each other when we fail each other. Aren't you glad that's not your God, your Savior? Praise the Lord. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Rest. Rest. O sweet son or daughter of the living Christ. Rest. Come unto me. All you who are laboring and heavy laden. And I will give you. There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. And so if you're going to strive, strive to enter into that rest. Verse 15, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Notice it says, This thing that has happened, not let's go see if this thing did happen. Let's see if whether or not this is going to happen. Let's see this thing that has happened. And let me, let me have that kind of certitude, that kind of faith in what he tells me. I will believe in what he says. I will believe, oh Lord, help my unbelief. Notice the response. No questions. No doubts. No hesitations. Have you have you ever doubted something he said? Oh dear brother or sister, thou shalt not lie in church. I'll be the first. 
The issue of theodicy doesn't just confront pagans, by the way. The issue of how God might vindicate himself for allowing evil. We're seeing more and more of it now. How many more images do we need to see from Ukraine? How many more images of, of, of dead infant babies and, and grandmothers who were out just getting a bag of potatoes shot down in the street? How much more before I have to start calcifying my heart and steal myself about it so I don't go running out in the streets and say, what sort of horror is this? And you're tempted and it's on your lips to say, what kind of God? The, the question of theodicy is hard for us all. Can we at least have the humility to admit that and say, I haven't got it all figured out. And I can't tell you, maybe I can't give you as his, as his attorney, his vindication for these things. But here's many things I can tell you about my God, his goodness and his grace. And that what we do to one another is what we deserve because it's what we chose. It's who we are. They just went. They picked up and they went immediately. As soon as the angels go away, the shepherds look at each other and say, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's go in and let's see. Believing is seeing. If you believe, you'll have sight. Spiritual sight, mind you. You'll have sight and you'll see. Lord, I believe. I believe. And you'll see things as they are. But brace yourself. Especially when it's time to look in the mirror. Accept what you see. Don't violate what James says when he says, when you've looked into the perfect law of liberty, are you going to straightaway walk and forget what manner of man you just saw? But we do that all the time. Simple faith is blessed with great reward. This tiny vessel that we're trying to navigate through these storm surges called life right now, the crazy weather, the, the absolute madness and sanity in politics and in the culture, and what people are doing to brutalize and mutilate themselves. If, if, if we don't find the simplicity of that devotion of Christ on the other side of this crazy madhouse, complexity will perish. You'll turn into some political right fighter. You'll, you'll be off on a tangent I'm afraid, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that though I've betrothed you to one, that is Christ, that you will lose the singularity, the simplicity of your devotion to Jesus Christ alone. Hold on. Here it comes. Do you see the storm clouds? If they haven't already come over us, 
Hold on to the simplicity on the other. What is the other side of yeah, the complexity of understanding what the realities are of the things that are going on around us. But we hold by faith. We have a sovereign God who's in charge of all of these things. We go down into the hold of this vessel where we pray and we meet with Christ and we don't sacrifice our devotion to him. And we say, God, help us. God, help us. We sing that song, that lovely song, that powerful song. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. Or do we rise up and make this become part of the complaining and the chiding and the mocking and the condescension? You're wrong and the right fighting and march out and go. Does he need us for that, by the way? Thank God he doesn't. Verse 16, and they went with haste. Mark that. They didn't, well, you know what? Let's, I've got some things going on with the sheep. I'll tell you what, tomorrow, there's something to this. When you hear the word of God, react to the word of God. Act. Don't spend time thinking what happens in your thought life. There you go. Yeah. There you go. It's gone. Less and less. Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday. They went in haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. This isn't a wondered how we use the word where it's like, what? What are you talking about? No, this is just like, wow. These things are too Wonderful to me. I mean, we know that the angels long to look into this issue, as Peter writes, of our salvation and this whole redemptive enterprise, and they're there going, Wow, have we got some news for you? That's how we should be, yeah? That's how we should be. I've got something to tell you, it's burning on my lips. I need you to see someone. Go and see a man. Go and see a man who's told me everything about myself. I think it's the Christ. Come and see. And that's just what Jesus said, didn't he? John 1. What are you seeking? And then, oh, okay, well, why don't you come and follow me? And you will see. That's the message. That's the haste. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, the level of urgency to it. How wonderful to picture these lowly shepherds gazing in awe of this little baby. This, this is amazing. But it makes sense to the shepherds because they've been despised their whole life. They've been in the fields. They smell like the sheep. They know that they're mocked and condescended to by the religious elite. So here he is. This is him. Okay. Okay, he's for me. I can wrap my mind around that. I can wrap my heart around that because I know who I am. Nothing. Nobody. And so they find hope. They're in awe of this baby. Those men who are in charge, get it again now. All those men who are in charge of tending 
to all of those sheep, a countless ongoing number. It's impossible to tally how many sheep that are going to go down and you'll hear the bleeding through the night, the bleating through the, through the days and nights as they're slaughtering them for, for sins. This is, this is the chief shepherd who has come. This is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The rugged simplicity of the birth of Christ. That's what we're to get here today. The rugged simplicity as we set that over against the complexity of his death. How does that work? <laughs> this whole atonement situation. How does that, how does he do that? How does he take on our sin? How does he make his righteousness available to us? It's, it's a wonderment to me. So we have the simplicity set against the complexity and the simplicity that comes outside of accepting the complexity by faith. Lord, I believe. Preserve the simplicity of my devotion to my Christ. Don't let anything interfere with it. There's a lot of competitors, isn't there? Especially now with the internet, social media, and now the, the holidays, and f- you're with family, and, you're, and there's all of the things that have become barnacles that are nothing more than barnacles, but the traditions that we engage in, and we enjoy being together and all of that. And, and this message gets buried. This little child in a feed trough in a cave, and these lowly shepherds who stink coming to see him and finding hope in him. That gives me hope. If it was some gilded story, some mythical sounding, something that just made you feel warm and fuzzy at the end, that's not the gospel, folks. That's not the gospel. The gospel understands the depths of my depravity, the wretchedness of it. And I'm thankful. Verse 19, we're almost done. So I can send you to those traditions that we all enjoy. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I remember the day when my bride came to me and said how much that verse, that verse right there meant to her. And I saw the tenderness of her love for our Savior in that moment, how much she loves him. She's a person who would Weep if she's denied her devotional time with him. And don't I feel like a heel whenever I interfere with her devotions? Yes. She measures, she's she's acknowledging the immeasurable value of what happened. She's, She's doing what all people should do. She's pondering these things deeply in her heart. If we go from here, the one thing we need to do is we need to do just that. Ponder these things deeply in our hearts. If we do, our hearts will sing like the angels and our voice will proclaim the great glory just like we see in verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Simple faith opens the eyes of believers. It opens our eyes to believe 
to have faith. We, we can see the wonders of God just like the shepherds are here. And so what happens is it causes us to erupt in this same glorifying and praising God for all that we have heard and seen, all that we have heard in His daily speaking to us through His Word, and all that we have seen in the testimony of our lives, the testimony of the faithfulness and the righteousness of God in our lives to preserve us in this tiny vessel as we're being storm-tossed. The psalmist says over and over again, remember these things, recount these things, and the psalmist recount them and recount them. Depend on that facility that you've been so graciously given as an image-bearer. Remember the things that God has done. Remember the things that you've heard in this, your house this morning, and take them with you and let the glory and the praises of God well up in you and share that today. Something more than pass the potatoes. I hope that's me. When Jesus arrived, There was no room for him at the end. That's what it says. No room in this guest house. No room in this lodging place. Whatever it was. No room. Why would it tell us that? Could it be that when he came, as we well learned in our work through John's gospel, what was John the Baptist's job? Prepare you a way. Open up your hearts. Get rid of the dead works, the dead parts of the religion. He has come. There's no no room for him. So he has to be born in some carved out livestock feeding area. Amazing. Prepare the way of the Lord. So the people of God are to make room for him in their hearts. And there's no greater time to do that than now and to ponder these things in our hearts just like Mary so that we might erupt in glory and praise just like the shepherds. Have you made room for him in your heart today? Have you? Do you know what that looks like? What does that look like? I need to know. Don't leave me alone with this. It's not part of the community life of the church to help one another, to make sure their hearts are ready to receive. If you do, if you open, if you believe and you open your hearts, the King of glory will come in. And you'll see like you've never seen before. You'll be comforted like you've never been comforted before. You'll find hope that you didn't even know existed. But you'll find something more important, that final little gift under the tree, if you will. Forgiveness. Forgiveness for all your sins. Is that not the greatest gift ever you could give to a sin-stricken, sin-fallen human being. May we be found doing the same as these humble shepherds, believing fully, acting promptly, respond 
unhesitatingly to his call. You'll have an opportunity to do that now as we pray. You're just about there. You're just about there. Don't cast your mind on to what you got cooking for lunch or where you're going or the gifts to open. That's coming. Save this moment for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. It's been an unusual morning for me, for sure. And I thank you for that because you assure me you have good purpose in all of these things. Thank you so much for these, my brothers and sisters, who would gather here today on this very, very cold day to celebrate the warmth of the love of Jesus Christ. The light has come, the true light. The life who is the light of men, that we too might have life by faith in him. Thank you, O Lord, for this assurance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.